welcome to the False Neutral Podcast. This is episode 79 for July of 2018. And our streak continues. All three of us are on the podcast again this month. Eric and Woo-hoo! Jared are with me. Yeah. Greetings, fellows. How's it going? Good evening. It goes. When we do these once a month, it feels like at least six months between them. Like, <laughs> and, and the problem is I don't remember what we talked about or like, you know, what happened in between then and now. I really should keep notes, uh, but I don't. So here we are. <laughs> it's good to talk to you all again, though. Uh, let's jump into our workshop update. Uh, I haven't done diddly as I predicted, and I won't for at least another month. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I need to work on my FZ1 again. Although, need to, eh, I don't know if I really need to. So, remember a few months ago, it was leaking coolant out of the weep hole in the bottom of the oil pan. I ordered all 330,000 O-rings and gaskets and seals to rebuild the water pump underneath the engine and put it all back together. Um, the coolant goes through a tube from the water pump that uh, basically goes through the, the oil pan. So if the seal goes bad, coolant leaks through that tube and, and to the outside so you can see it rather than inside your oil pan where it uh, fouls the oil. Well, that tube goes through the oil and has an O-ring that seals the oil from also leaking to the outside. Those O-rings, which I replace along with every other O-ring and every other gasket, but somehow it's leaking oil past the O-ring that's new uh, and and onto the ground at, at a pretty slow rate, so I'm not really that worried about it, but it's pretty annoying because that whole process was super involved. And I am really meticulous about cleaning everything and replacing it and, and the, the procedures for doing it all just according to the manual. So, I mean, I spent a lot of time doing it right and somehow it's not right. It's leaking oil and that's pretty annoying. Now you're, <laughs> but you're not leaking coolant, not leaking coolant and you don't have any coolant in the oil. That's right. So this really isn't a need to. This is a, yeah, well, you're imitating yes. a British bike at this point. Yeah, so it doesn't need to be done. I mean, we're talking about a drip of oil a day, maybe like, you know, one drop. Um, but I discovered this just as I was. Um, so let's see, two, no, two weeks ago or so, I went to uh, our local track day event at Portland International Raceway. I didn't ride. But um, the local Ducati dealership hosts a track day every two weeks. Um, And so I went there uh, just to kind of get the information so I could sign up for one of the coming ones. And, you know, they're they make it very clear there cannot be any any leaks, especially oil coming from the bike. Sure. So and, you know, it it is a slow leak. So I could. Uh, just wipe the underside of the bike and be like, look, there's no leaks. But I don't really want to do that at a racetrack where, you know, people are already at enough it, risk. If, I don't want to have additional risk. Have, having having put enough laps around a racetrack on a motorcycle, if it literally leaks one drop, 
in a day. Yeah. That's less than a bunch of the race bikes that are out there. Whether or not, and, and trust me, if you got a belly pan on it and, and if your belly pan has a, uh, a catch basin on it, you're fine. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess the good thing is, is it drips onto the exhaust right on top of where the, the four pipes collect into one. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it would burn away. Uh, before it You're even fine. hit the ground. Yeah. So, um, but I was going to talk about the track day. It's, um, it's a pretty neat setup that they have over here. Um, Motocorsa, uh, uh, is a Ducati dealership here in Portland. And I believe that they are the number one Ducati dealership in the United States. And if it's not the United States, it's definitely like the West Coast. Um, they're kind of a big dealership. And for some reason, they just can move a lot of Ducatis, but, they host their own track day and, but it's open to anybody to come and they bring in 12 to 14 instructors to host it. And there aren't a ton of people that come. I mean, I would guess out of the three classes, A, B and C, there's probably a total of about 60 riders. So you have, you know, maybe 15 to 20 per class on the track for each session and the instructors, there's 12 to 14 of them. Um, they, they are there solely to instruct you. And so you really get almost a one on one with an instructor, which is all included in the price. So it's $200 for the whole day. I mean, that's 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. They provide breakfast and lunch catered. Uh, they give you almost one on one professional instruction for the whole day. Uh, 200 bucks. That's an awesome deal. Yeah, that's a is. really, really good deal. And so it's 225 if you sign up the day of the track day. It's 200 if you sign up early. And it's 185 if you sign up for all of them in advance. Um, yeah, but that's a pretty big commitment if you're doing it is. all of them. Well, I think that they do five of them. Oh, okay. So, so it is a big commitment, um, but it's... I mean, a hell of a value. When you were saying you're doing them every two weeks and the, with the weather you have out there, I'm thinking they're doing them for like seven months, seven no, months. No. And I'm like, I'm like, wow, that's, that's a lot of track days. Yeah, but five, do. six, yeah. even six. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'd scratch yeah. that check in a heartbeat. Yeah. So yeah, it's a pretty neat setup. Um, I don't any longer have, uh, you know, so you have to wear. In the C class, which is like the entry level, which you have to do if you haven't ridden on the track for a year or two, like no matter what, um, you got to at least do a little bit of the C class um, and then you can move into the B or the A, depending on where your riding skills at. But you have to have full leathers. You have to have gauntlet style gloves uh, that go above the wrist um, and you have to have actual, you know, tall boots. You can't mm-hmm. have like the ankle high boots. And so... I need to get another set of leathers and I need to get some taller boots and I have what, the gloves. What um, size, what size shoe, what size boot do you wear? Well, it depends. Uh, I mean, my normal shoe size is a nine and a half, but in an Alpenstar, <laughs> it's an eight. Oh, wow. They, okay. they, yeah. They, they, um, their sizing is really, really odd. So like, um, yeah, I, I don't remember what the European equivalent is, but yeah, an Alpenstar boots, it would be like an eight, but like a normal nine and a half shoe size. And Alpenstar is the only, is the only brand that I've come across that's like that where the sizing so far off. Um, but I also do really love their boots. Um, a few weeks ago, I bought a pair of their SMX vented 
boots and honest to God, the best motorcycling boots I've ever worn in my life. They're so nice. But yeah, so I want to do the the track day. I also need to put a new set of tires on my bike because mine are death defyingly slick. <laughs> uh, they're like marbles. They're literally the worst tires in the world, which seems to be a theme with continental tires that I've had on my sport bikes. Um, I've had continental tire. At one point I've had continentals on almost everything that I've owned and they're all just universally bad. It seems so I need to get a set of better tires for the track, but I'm also considering getting a set of standalone wheels with track tires since I do a lot of road riding and I can sacrifice some track grip for longevity, um, which I don't really want to do. Um, so I'm thinking about getting a set of uh, a second set of wheels that have a dedicated set of track tires on them so I can run a touring style tire when I normally ride and just switch over to the track tire for track days. Well, I, th- I think I shared this story long time ago on the podcast, but uh, when Dunlop Sport Elites first came out, the 291s, this is going back to 80... 80- 283 something like that um you could buy a street compound or you could buy an r 291 r yeah. for road race compound <laughs> and I, being the hot shoe i was i of course <laughs> needed the had to have the r <laughs> and i and and i laid my bike down like five times within a mile of leaving i was living in the army barracks at the time and it was like for about the first mile they were nylon rim protectors. They were, yeah. it, and I'd get them really hot and then I'd come in and the next morning you could actually scrape them and they would have like varnish that you could flake off of yeah. them. And ever since then, I'm like, don't use road race tires on the street because right. they, unless you can get them that hot, they're never going to be, you know, hot enough on the street to work properly the way you expect them to on the road, yeah. the, the race course. And if you do, they're going to wear like you're on a race course. Yeah, exactly. And so the what you need a tire to do on the street and what you need to do on the track are two entirely different thing, things. So trying to get a tire to do both well is not it, – it's a tall order. And tires have come a long ways, and there are tires that can do both adequately. But, you know, the way that I see it is – the the FC ones especially, they've been around forever. You can get wheels for pretty cheap. And then also there's some carryover between like the R1s and and some other bikes. So, you know, I could be into a set of track wheels for really not that much money. And then I don't really have to sacrifice. Uh, I can have a set of slicks and then a set of touring tires. And That really makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But yeah, I just wanted to share on that value. Uh, 200 bucks. I mean, with all the instruction that they provide, I feel like in the course of a summer, go through four or five or six of those track day events with, you know, spend six, seven hours on the track, get instruction. You could probably come away a really capable rider after that for not a lot of money. Oh, yeah. So just even after a couple, couple of them, you're, yeah, you're going to increase a lot. I was encouraged to see also that 
um, there were a lot of really, really nice bikes there, but there were also people on touring bikes. There were people that brought their adventure bikes. Um, and there's kind of everything in between. Um, and there's like really no judgment that I saw. Um, you know, you brought what you ride and, you know, you ride responsibly on the track. You don't have to go fast, but as long as you're uh, paying attention, then, uh, everybody is, uh, very inviting and inclusive in the whole process. So I was, uh, I was trying to remember, I, I know I've said, I was looking to see if I had a, a thing from Dunlop cause they were running a sale recently. Um, but there were no tire sizes that would have fit my, my Yamaha, but, uh, that I was looking at some other stuff. And I know one of the ones that's does pretty good on the track, uh, but wears a long time. If, even if you wanted to try and use it on the street, uh, the Bridgestone S21s, I think. Yeah. Those are, are pretty solid and they're not unreasonably priced. I think you yeah. can probably pick up a set for three to three fifty or something like that. So and, yeah. and you'd you'd be able to do a ton of a number yeah. of track days anyway. So. And and I don't ride a ton on the street compared to a lot of people. So I've had my FC one now um like a year and three months. And I've put, uh, let's say I put 2,600 miles on it. So not an insane amount. Yeah. Uh, and at that track day, so I was, uh, going home and I had left the track. I had got out onto like the main road and I found a GoPro on the side of the road and like it was at the point in the road where it could only have come from the track. Um, so I found this GoPro and I, I just grabbed it. I went home. I loaded the SD card into my computer, pulled up some of the video, recognized the bike that it was on, drove back to the track, found the guy. And I was like, <laughs> Hey, you lose a GoPro? He's like, yeah. And so I reunited it, uh, with him. Um, I thought that was kind of neat. It was, you know, kind of detective work and it worked out. Uh, but yeah, so found a GoPro on the street <laughs> and got it back to its owner. That's cool. Yeah. That makes you a good guy. Oh, doesn't it? Did you buy you a coffee at least? No, <laughs> that's all right. I have. So how, how, how far away from the track are you? Oh gosh. I mean, it's like six miles, um, away, but it's like, I like literally just jump on the freeway six miles down the freeway, jump right off the freeway. Oh, wow. So it's, it's, it can't like, be more convenient. No. I mean, it takes me four minutes <laughs> to get there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, pretty close. Uh, and speaking of that track day, um, there were some very, very exotic bikes there. Um, it's hosted by the Ducati dealer. So of course there is a new Panigale V4 there. Um, which I just have to say with acroprovic exhaust. Oh, it like <laughs> it. So, um, honey, forget the kids college. Fund, yeah. Is that what I mean, you're saying? so it, it comes, it comes around the last corner before the straight. And especially with a quick shift and that ignition interrupt when it's going through the gears, going down the straight, I don't know if I've ever heard something so magical in my life. <laughs> that new V4 just sounds exquisite. I mean, and not to take away from, there were a few Aprilia RSV4s there. 
um, and just some really incredible bikes. The CBR 1000 RRSP, uh, which looked absolutely phenomenal. It had, you know, that red, white and blue paint job with the gold wheels on it. Oh, just an exquisite looking motorcycle. Um, those track days are worth going to just to look at some of the bikes that are there. It's really amazing. But the, the new Panigale, I just have to share that it sounds godlike. It is impressive. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, it, well, since our last show, I don't think it's rained once and it's pretty much Wait been not rained once. I thought Detroit was literally or not Detroit, but Michigan was literally underwater. <laughs> well, it, it was a few months ago. Now, if you look at my okay. grass, it's all yellowed. Uh, but at, at, at the same time, it's also been in the mid and upper 90s for most of the last month. Yeah. So uh, to the point where last week, I think it was actually like a week ago today, my wife wakes me up at like six in the morning. It's like the air conditioner is not working. Uh, and, and I go outside and sure enough, it sounds like it's running, but the fan on top of the compressor isn't, isn't running. So my guess is it had been working so hard for the last three or four days running nonstop that it actually overheated. And so I'd shut everything off and hosed it down with water. And about two and a half hours later, it started. The reason for the preamble is the fact that yesterday was really the first day where a, I had time and B, it wasn't a hundred degrees at like seven o'clock at night. I actually rolled my motorcycle out and attempted to put the electronic ignition on the bike, which I got through step five. And then when I had to start wiring it, uh, me and wiring apparently didn't want to work well together because I even I even have the fancy butt connector crimpers and I couldn't get wires to hold and stay together. And I'm just like it was to the point where it was nine o'clock, nine thirty. It was getting a little bit dark. And I was about ready to start throwing things. So it's at that point I stood up, put all the tools on a table I have sitting in the garage and wheeled the bike back in. Yeah. You know, definitely take your time doing that because the last thing that you want is some sort of, you know, ignition electrical, like intermittent issue uh, going on down the road. So uh, even if you just do a little bit here and there, uh, don't rush. Don't try to get it done too quickly or don't get frustrated. You'll get it done eventually. Yeah, I'm thing. I was trying to be nice and use butt connectors. I don't have a, I don't have a soldering iron, but you know, I was, I wasn't just trying to spin all the wires together and electrical tape it together. I was actually trying to do it right. You know, yeah. Like yeah. paying attention and yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, you made a little bit of progress, so I expect to see that thing running sometime. But it doesn't. It doesn't have to be this season. Okay. <laughs> One of the things I I just recently did that has been keeping me from working on my bikes is uh, we had a whole bunch of furniture that uh, after my mother in law died had all of her furniture and all of our furniture and we we're trying to figure out what to do with it. Well, my niece is out in Manhattan, Kansas at uh, Kansas State University and she got her own apartment. We were like, yeah, we'll hold on to the stuff until you get into your new apartment next summer, which we loaded up a 12 foot, 16 foot rental trailer and hauled all the stuff out there. Well, the, we've got a 2002 F-150 that had the towing kit on it, but 
through a whole lot of uh, uh, field exercises over the years out at the family farm had gotten bashed in. And I was like, okay, it's all broken up. I need to replace this because the trailer we rented had the big six-way RV connector to plug in. Mm -hmm. I got under there and I started cutting the wires and they were so corroded. I just kept it cutting up farther and farther. And it, and once you get wire past the insulator, it will just travel up the wire. Yeah. So far and corrode everything. So I ended up having to replace like the last three and a half, four feet of all of those connectors. And, uh, fortunately I work at a place where uh, they make all of this stuff. So I have some <laughs> really nice uh, glue-filled heat shrink crimps, the butt connectors that are, mm-hmm. you, you crimp them, and then you put a heat gun on them, and it's got glue on the inside that yep. melts, and the whole thing shrinks down, and the glue squirts out the edges and outside you know, the ends and really seals it up nice. So I managed to... Do it, but since I had to replace all the wire, I had to do double the number of of butt connection yeah. butt connectors and crimp them together. So it took me two and a half times as long as I thought it was going to be. It was a whole afternoon and evening of what I thought was going to be. Oh, you know, twenty minutes. You snip all the wires, you strip them, you crimp them together, and you six wires and you're done. It was like no, there was twelve wires because they had to do both ends of all of these corroded wires. So yeah. Uh, that reminds me, at the end of the last podcast, I had mentioned that I was going on a motorcycle ride down to California, uh, which would have happened a week and a half ago. And was that your, was that your yearly birthday ride? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, and so, but then, um, like, a couple months ago, my wife's grandma, who lives in the Salt Lake area, passed away. And we had done a couple trips going down there to like help organize stuff and box up stuff in her house. And, and so my wife inherited her piano and we were going to have a company move it here. Um, but as you can imagine, quotes for getting a piano from, uh, Utah to, to Portland, Oregon. Um, it, it was cost prohibitive. Uh, so I decided to, um, cancel my motorcycle trip and drive to Utah. So I have a 20 foot enclosed motorcycle trailer. Um, so my plan, I was going to cancel the motorcycle trip, um, drive to Utah and I was going to go with a buddy and we were just going to load our motorcycles in the trailer, uh, so we could get to Utah ride through the canyons, um, pick up the piano, go home. Um, but then my buddy wasn't able to go. And so I ended up just bailing on the whole motorcycle integration of the trip. So my wife and I just drove down, uh, to Utah. We picked up the piano, uh, brought it home and I got to do no motorcycling, but we did get the piano back, which was very important to my wife. And, uh, yeah, that's, not such a bad thing. <laughs> well, uh, happy wife, happy life. Yeah. Yeah. So if, yeah, anybody was wondering how that California trip went, it didn't. 
it turned into a Utah trip that involved no motorcycles. <laughs> but <laughs> did you yeah. did you wave at the Bonneville Salt Flats as you as you drove by on eighty? No, no, no. Uh, the the Bonneville uh, Salt Flats are like further down. Oh, okay. Like, so yeah, so we don't. Oh, she's we, in like northern northern Utah. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if it makes you feel any better, uh, my wife and I went to see everyone off for the smack dab ride in her Toyota Sienna minivan. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that was. We were originally going to ride the uh, uh, ride spiders. The spiders out, and just we knew we weren't going to go on the trip this year. Uh, yeah, we're, we're taking a a cruise with our nieces later on in the year, and that's all my vacation. So. The problem with smack dab is you get there and then you have to get home, which is at least another two days. So it's at least a four day thing all the way around. I just, I was like, I don't have the time, but, uh, we were going to ride out and my, when we moved my niece, I was looking at her bicycle and one of the crank arms was off her bicycle. I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, I don't know. It won't stay out. Well, it's supposed to be square mm-hmm. and. It had gotten loose and deformed so that no matter how much you cranked it down, it didn't uh, oh, yeah. it rock just enough that it just immediately came loose again. I was like, no, it's an old bike anyways. It's actually my wife's old bike from like 15 years ago. And I was like an old Schwinn. I was like, no, I'm going to give you my old city bike, which isn't all that old, but I don't ride it anymore. So I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. Let me let me give you my my bicycle. So – we put that in the back of the van, went to Smith Center, and then went right past her apartment on the way home on Sunday and dropped it off. So we didn't even get to ride our spiders out, which means I also still have not hooked up our new communicators into the showy <laughs> modular helmets. So, yeah, I'm going on, what, three months now or four months that I keep talking about it. But, you know... It, I read something a long time ago in a motorcycle magazine that's resonated with me. People who ride to live and live to ride have really boring lives. You know, there are other things in life that make it worth living that you have to be involved in. So, yeah, no, that's true. Uh, One interesting thing is that, uh, remember we had, uh, Ethan Seda on the show that was one of the guys that uh, had yep. written to us and had gone out. Well, he did not make it this year, but one of the guys that he hooked up and rode with uh, was there again this year. So he was doing it for the second time and got to connect with him. Finds out he lives across town from me. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So did, did it, it from from the reports that smack dab go off? OK, everyone uh, was happy. It depends on who you, well, they didn't have the wind this year. And, but they did have rain, not, uh, serious, uh, hazardous weather, which in the Midwest is always good. But they did have some thunder showers and some rain showers that came through. Depending on who you ask, some people said, nope, didn't have any rain the whole way up. Some people, eh, a quarter of the time they were in the rain, and other people were like, oh, yeah, it rained on me half the trip. I just I got into the rain, and I just happened to be traveling at the right speed at the right time. I just followed the whole system all the way north and rained the whole time. It didn't 
uh, rain at the beginning, didn't rain at the end. So we have some nice photographs of people. Had a total of uh, 88 riders and 102 or 106 or 188 bikes and 100 and some odd single digits uh, rider. So cool. that was about a, depending on which number you want to use, a 10 to 15% larger than last year. And a lot of people did it a second time. We had a number of repeat riders and uh, it, it overall, yeah, it was, it, everybody seemed to think they had a good time. Most people were very thankful they did not have the 30 mile an hour crosswinds in South Dakota <laughs> that we had yeah. last year. So no kidding. Uh, that's a lot of riders. Are they during that trip? Are they all grouped together in one long chain of no. bikes or does no. it spread it, out? Okay. It, it's, it's a ride at your own pace. Stop when you want to stop whenever you okay. need gas. I mean, cause there are some people that, you know, have, have BMW Paris Dakar bikes that can go, you know, 220 miles between Phillips. And then you've got, you know, our spiders. If you go 135 miles, you're on fumes and you're, you're oh really oh yeah i would have thought those would have a way way longer range it's because they get like 30 miles a gallon i mean they're just yeah all the aerodynamic efficiency of a motorcycle and the frontal area of a car just (laughs) you know yeah it's the worst of both worlds yeah so now the new ones the new three-cylinder ones are a whole lot more fuel efficient they're they run it slower speeds you know slower crank speeds and and higher geared and six speed transmission that our v twins don't have so they they get a yeah. lot better mileage which is one yeah. of the reasons they went to the new motor so yeah yeah um had a mv agusta uh turismo veloce make the trip this year which i was slobbering over at the <laughs> at the departure so yeah no kidding but that sounds yeah that wait that's the that's their new sport touring model yeah 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 okay and uh now i have about 35 different uh patches to send out to people who have sent me money for their finishers patch that i need to get in the mail out to them so yeah, that's cool um one of the things that garrett put in the uh, chat for something we talked about i that was actually really a good a good thing because i've seen a lot of talk about this is uh travis pastrana doing the evil knievel uh i won't call it the victory tour but the homage tour homage yeah. uh, event and i i saw some of the highlights on youtube and and it was cool one of the interesting things though is i saw a lot of smack talk against him and like well it would have been cooler if he would have done it on like the same bike that Evil Knievel did. So my first question is the Triumph or the Harley, number one. And number two, a 350-pound Indian dirt track bike is close enough as makes no difference. Yeah, he yeah. didn't do it on a, on a CR250 or bike. something like that. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. When when Robbie Knievel did the over the Caesars Palace fountains, he did it on a, uh, uh, a CR500, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, that bike that Travis was jumping is still pretty antiquated compared to bikes that he could be jumping. It was not a motocross. It's still, no, I mean, it's like five inches of suspension travel. It's super heavy. Um, I mean, that is, that is, that is Indian's dirt track bike, the FTR 750. So that's, that literally is their production factory. 
it you know the, it's the, as the factory close as bike you can that. get to a champion framed Bonneville or a uh, uh, an XR750 yep. in a in a bike that's being produced today. Yeah, and it, but it is important to note that that bike is made to go on a flat track, not jump 143 feet. Exactly. <laughs> like it's not made to jump. Um, I wouldn't take away anything from no. Travis on on that bike. And when I first heard about this event happening, the, I mean, like the thing that I wanted to know more than anything was what was he going to jump? And I was like, it's going to be crazy if he jumps on a Harley or an Indian or something like that. Like I fully expected him to jump on a motocross bike. Yep. Uh, you know, these are significant distances. Now, I have to say that I had no expectation that he was not going to be successful. I am no. sure his trajectory was uh, simulated in really high-end modeling software a bunch of different ways, which is the difference between today and when Evil Knievel was, even at the time, not known for sweating the details. He'd kind of yeah. eyeball the angle of the ramp. He had no speedometer. He just kind of did it all by feel. Right. Which could be a compliment or he's just a foolhardy daredevil who, you know, had more balls and guts than brains. You know, you can look at that as a positive or negative. All the above can be true, though. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, and it's just totally different. So I will say that Evil Knievel sucked at jumping motorcycles. He had gigantic cojones, but he had like no concept of controlling the motorcycle on the air. I mean, he just went off of a jump and then prayed that he would land on the other side. Um, it, it, Travis, on the other hand, is probably the most experienced and perhaps the best motorcycle jumper there has ever been. Um, and and the, it was much more calculated. So there is, you know, zero question that he was going to do it. Well, um, but but I still think it's it's really cool. Oh, I thought it was very cool. And the thing is, though, I mean, we've we've now got these, you know, freestyle motocross tours and the X Games and everything that there is just so much more knowledge about yeah. the dynamics of these things in the air and how to control them. I mean, there, it's been done so much. That's kind of the thing that made Evil Knievel famous was that he was the one of the pioneers doing these super long jumps over stuff yeah. for the first time. Now yeah. they've kind of got it down to a science. Although I'm confident that without much preparation, I'll, I'll bet Travis could look at ramps, look at what needs to be done, look at the distance that needs to be traveled. And I'll bet he could uh, just kind of wing it. And I'll bet he'd do just fine. But, you know, on live TV, they don't want to kill a guy. Right. And obviously he doesn't want to crash. Um, and so they, they did all the preparation. But but knowing what I know of Travis, I'm pretty confident that he could have winged it and done OK. Well, it, it's just, you know, stuff like. Evil Knievel didn't even know about, you know, modulating the throttle right. to, to rotate the motorcycle mm -hmm. one way In or the air. other, yep. you know, and and. That was all stuff that was learned over the years yeah. between when he was doing this stuff and what they were doing today. I mean, yeah. And whenever I look back on evil, like videos of evil jumping, 
I always thought he looked so stupid in the air. This like, you're like his butt never left the seat. It was just like he was sitting the whole time, which seems like the opposite of what you would do jumping a bike. But I was interested. Um, I saw when Travis was jumping, like he looked almost exactly the same. <laughs> I mean, he like sitting on the seat, like going off the ramp, sitting like basically sitting in the air the whole time and then like taking his butt up just before he lands, which I think now um, thinking about it is more a product of the, like the riding position of that kind of motorcycle where like, you know, the foot pegs and the seat and the handlebars, like you almost kind of have to look stupid while jumping it. Like versus a motocross bike, you can, the, the cockpit is a little bit bigger. So, so you can kind of spread out a little bit more. Um, I was surprised that Travis looked a lot like Evil did flying through the air. I figured he would have looked more like he was jumping a motocross bike. Yeah. Uh, that might have been part of the show, though, too, is to try and really yeah. make it look, you know, he might Authentic. have changed his, his normal, what he would have what he would have done on that had it not been. Yeah. Versus that, yeah, just to make it yeah. look, which, which I think is a subtlety that, like, very few people would ever catch. Yeah. Here's here's another question I'll ask. Is this as impressive as some of the stuff they do on the motocross bikes? I mean, when they're doing, you know, double backflips in the X Games, is just going from ramp to ramp, regardless of the bike, really all that remarkable? I think that it is for a couple of reasons. And one is the bike that he's doing it on. Um, it's difficult to control that bike in the air. It has really minimal suspension. But also... The distances that he is traveling are remarkable. His first jump, he went 143 feet. And that is significant. The longest motocross jumps that you'll come to on a track, which the, the tracks, they typically jump a little bit longer than they do, even in the freestyle. Freestyle is more about how high you can get into the air, so you have more time to do some trick. Um, but you know, 90 feet is about the maximum that you would typically jump a motocross bike. And that's the biggest triple at the track. So he's going 143 feet on jump one, uh, Travis on a 350 pound bike with five inches of suspension travel. I mean, that's, that's pretty significant. Plus he's doing it on live TV with a huge crowd and you know, when I, I looked at the videos of him, like he doesn't have a big runway to, to get up to speed and get prepared to hit the launch ramp. Um, you know, he really has to do it all right the first time. Plus, you know, in motocross jumping, like you go to arena to arena or you go to practice track to pra practice track, it's all the same. Like you're just doing it the same every week. They're the same launch ramps, the same landings. This is entirely different. It's not like he's been doing these jumps every day for the past 20 years and it's just a show like, you know, it is all planned out. But still, this isn't like the normal rodeo. So, yeah, it's not your normal weekly Nitro Circus show. Yeah. And so here I'm just looking at some of the specs um, for the first jump, which was 52 cars. Um, Evil jumped it. He did 120 feet, um, and Travis was 143 feet. Not to say that one is more impressive than the other, but um, Travis did go just a little bit farther. Um, and then on the second jump, 
let's see, the second jump, Travis, it was 16 buses. That was 192 feet that Travis flew on that jump. Um, Evil's jump was just 133 feet. So really went smashed that uh, that record. That's pretty impressive. 193 feet. Um, the third jump was over the Caesar Palace Fountain. Uh, the listeners will probably remember that this is the one <laughs> that did not lend itself kindly to Evil's body. Uh, yeah. This is the one where he was just ragdoll flying, uh, broke like every bone on his body. Um, Travis jumped 149 feet. Uh, Evil's was 141 feet on that third jump. And the interesting thing is the film of him tumbling and everything was actually filmed by Linda Evans, the, oh, act- is that right? the actress. Yeah. She was married at the time to the guy that was going to do a movie about him. And, uh, so he, he had already backed out of the movie, yeah. but he, Said, we're all set up. Yeah, we'll go. When he saw how really reckless he was about mm-hmm. setting this up, he's like, no, we're, we're not, I'm not getting involved in a movie with you. But since you already have the film equipment, we'll go ahead and film you. And his wife, Linda Evans from, you know, Dynasty and TV fame was actually the one that filmed him. The, the <laughs> shot from the end of showing yeah. him tumbling that made it onto, uh, ABC Wide World of Sports and made everybody that was she was I thought that was a really interesting bit of trivia I had never known I thought it was yeah. some professional sports photographer so um I think that I had read that Travis the boots that he was wearing were Evil's boots um like so you know Travis was in uh, Evil like get up you know with the leathers and whatnot but I'm pretty sure that the boots are original Evil Knievel boots don't quote me on that i think that's what i read i I think the cool thing about it for me is it felt like a really evil knievel-esque promotional stunt which is actually the thing that evil was really good at yeah he Mm -hmm. wasn't a great motorcycle jumper but he knew how to promote himself and he knew how to draw a crowd and he knew how to get people to to give him money to do stupid stuff and and it kind of felt to me like regardless of what you think of the jump, the fact that they managed to develop this much hype over it in this age of Nitro Circus and X Games and everything, I thought was a real fitting tribute to just his hucksterism, you know, and his, yeah. uh, he was such a good, uh, uh, carnival pitch man, you know, that, that I was like, right. okay, this is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, so that was pretty fun. Um, Eric, I think it was you, or maybe it was you, Pete, uh, posted a video in our group chat about the Duke 790 running. That was, that was, yeah, that was, that was Eric. Yeah. yeah, that is a pretty thrilling video. That, so That's an impressive ride. So that bike uh, on that run finished, I think, fourth in the motorcycles. Wow. And it was only, I want to say, four seconds off of winning. And the winning bike was, it was either a 1290 Multistrada-based bike or a 1290 Super Duke-based bike. One yeah. of the one finished first, one finished second. But that it was that close. And, like, the first to second was, like, within 
three quarters of a second or something like they were that close, but it was only four seconds back, which is actually really impressive for that Duke 790. The the one thing that was interesting, though, is just listening to how hard it's struggling to rev. Once it gets to about 11, 12,000 feet, you realize just how thin that air is. But yeah, that was that was really cool. And and the three, it was actually one of the first well done 360 videos editing wise I've, I've seen done there were there were a few times when the video was like whoa 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 you know yeah but um but yeah it gave you a really good idea of like lean angles and what yeah. what you're racing up the hill what what it really looks like so on that 360 <clears throat> video um i've never seen like what the camera is actually mounted to like is it is it would it be distracting for the rider? Like, does the the it's, camera actually like spin around visibly on it? Or no, it's it... a, it's a it's a set it's a set thing. So it's like a, one okay. of the three, like a Theta Cam or the GoPro or a bunch of the other ones that are three sixty, where it's probably just two lenses. Yeah. Um, or if it's a really expensive one, it'd have four. But let's just say two because it's on a bike and you don't want a lot of weight. But in some of the new editing software, whether it's in uh, Premiere or Final Cut. And with some of the software you can do, you can literally have it, and then you kind of just choose the angle as you're going, as you're editing it. So that's that's been one of the new things, one of the latest developments the last, like, nine nine to 12 months with that. So Yeah. And so they said that that was a record in the middle-class motorcycles, but have they been running motorcycles? Well, so the, the course is now fully paved, which right. has only been as of recent. So, like, is it... Is it impressive to say that that's an, a new middleweight record, or is that just I, like I would say so? Um, I think the, the the whole course has been paved for four years or five yeah. years now, yeah. um, but I think they were they were running they've been running bikes pretty consistently. I'm going to say for ten years because and, Ducati really is the one that kind of kicked off the modern era when they were racing one of the multi one of the first multi stratas up there. Yeah. And they were trying to set a record, so, but so, that was that, there was gravel at the top there too. But now that it's all paved, isn't the course kind of better suited for a super sport bike um, versus um, you know something like a Duke? Like, yes. why, why run a Duke and not a GSXR seven hundred and fifty? Because the rules state that it has to have a there's, that you can't have clip on handlebars. Oh, and okay. that has something to do going back, I think, to the gravel days with insurance. Yeah. Uh, and limited steering locks and things like that. And they didn't want like some super crazy fast bikes going up, especially when the gravel. And I think even now with, with the paved roads, they want to try and limit that somehow too. And yeah. so that's their way around it. Yeah. Uh, but, but, and it may be that the bike has to come factory with, uh, with, with, with like without clip on with some kind of straight bar. Yeah. Uh, that you can't t- take a super bike and then throw a flat track bar on it and call it close enough, you know, yeah. that, that it well, has to be. It seems like a Tuano could just really haul up that. You would road. think. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, but that was a really neat video. And uh, for our listeners, if they haven't seen it, maybe we can put a link. Um, that yeah, but, will, that yeah, will get your that blood the, uh, yeah. yeah, you put that in the uh, in the Hooniverse post. Yeah. And then speaking of uh, Tuano and Aprilia, I was going to mention that um, July 29th here at my local Aprilia of Portland dealer, they are unveiling the 2018 RSV4 RF limited edition. Now, 
it, I, I have kind of mixed feelings about this bike. So um, the RSV4 RF is the um, kind of top of the line Aprilia super sport bike. Um, Aprilia now has a limited edition model that'll cost you an extra thousand dollars over the standard quote RF. Um, and that for that thousand dollars, you get winglets on the mm-hmm. side and some um, aggressively Italian paint job, <laughs> like you know, uh, red and green, very loud. Um, now. I really like Aprilia and I love the RSV4 and I love the Tuano, but it's starting to feel pretty stale. Um, mm-hmm. This bike and, and this model, this design, this has been out for, I think, eight years now. Um, maybe nine, something like no, that. No, eight. I think 10 was, 10 was the first year for this one. Yeah. yeah, 2010. And although it still performs in the upper echelon of performance bikes, um, it just seems a little bit boring to me now. And, and part of me think, thinks that this LE is just like, I almost just like, just like, give it up, give up this model. Like, I don't want your LE. I don't want your limited edition model. Just like come out with something new. <laughs> you know, it's almost like yeah. a way to like keep excitement around a really stale model is well, what it feels like. Well, so there's two things about that. Uh, yeah, and yeah, 24495 or 24499. Yeah, 25 grand. Yeah, yeah, call it. So Porsche does a really good job of this uh, with, a, say, a 911. And there's literally a roadmap because they've been doing it for so long. You know, like year yeah. one, you get you know the 911. Then you get the yeah. – in year two, you get the Carrera. And then you get the Carrera S in year three. And then in year four, you get the, the GT3. And then in year four, you get the year five, you get the GT3 RS and the GT2, you know. Um, So Aprilia is probably doing that. And and so, yes, you do stretch it out and create things. The other thing is that when you start talking to the market that's going to buy that bike or in the price in that price range, how do you distinguish yourself? Well, I've got the, the I paid extra for the special and paying extra for the special, even if it literally is like a sticker kit and not much else. That means something to them. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, it, it, so the marketing on it makes sense. The research is probably solid, uh, and I think they're only making like a hundred, or, or they're only making a couple hundred of them, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so. it's um, a hundred and twenty-five of them are coming to North America. Twenty-five of those are in Canada. One hundred are coming to the United States. Um, my local dealer is getting number fifty-five. Um, and so the, the bike has been unveiled for a while now. Um, yeah, they did it months. at uh, MotoGP. Yeah. Um, but and, they're, sorry, MotoGP at Coda. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. They're just starting to kind of roll out into dealerships. So my local dealership is having their unveiling of their bike, which is, I'm sure, already spoken for. Um, it's number 55. So they're having an event for it. I'm going to go to that um, July 29th. And, uh, yeah, see how those winglets look in person, I guess. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing a new model. Um, I really like the Panigale V4, and I'm like really interested in that. Although I don't, I don't really consider myself a Ducati fanboy. I think I lean more towards Aprilia just because they're they're kind of the odd one, so to speak. Um, they just don't have like the the hype that Ducati does. 
Um, so I'd really like to see a new model that I could get excited about. Yep. Uh, they've been spending money trying to make a competitive MotoGP bike, and I think that's where all their money's going and not in yeah. the, the next super bike. So. Yeah. Well, and also, I'm, I'm sure they're selling all they can make. It's really difficult to justify a whole bunch of R&D on a new bike if they're still selling well, and there's yeah. not enough of them on the used market that if you want one, you can reliably go out and find a nice one on you know, Craigslist whenever you want. So yeah. I, I'm sure the demand is there, you know, uh, I don't know yeah, how long that would be the case, but it's still a good enough performing can, bike. And can, can, considering Honda has been rolling out the same CBR 1000 double R for over a decade, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right. And I'm sure that the Tuano has really helped Aprilia sales numbers given how much good publicity it's gotten. Yep. And the RSV4 is still a great bike, and it looks really good. Um, I've just been looking at the same thing for eight years, and so like if this if this were the the new like you know say there is some different RSV4, and then they introduce this bike today, I'd be like, wow, that's a beautiful shape. I really like that. Um, it's just that I've been looking at it for so long, and now I'm kind of like uh, bored of it, I guess. So, but yeah, uh, Pete, I'm guessing. Because that Craigslist ad is deleted, you now own an older FJ twelve hundred. <laughs> no, no, um, I don't. No, no. no but it's really interesting. There's, I think I know where the guy lives, and I think it's on my commute. Uh, he... So let's just for listeners that don't know where we're going with this. Um, uh, Pete had messaged Eric and I a few days ago, and there's a guy in his neck of the woods that had a motorcycle collection, some really beautiful bikes. And um, one of them uh, happened to be a what? What? I mean, uh, Yamaha 86. FJ twelve eighty six, an eighty six FJ twelve hundred. Beautiful, beautiful bike. And, and, I, and I just checked; it is still for sale. Oh, it is for sale. Yeah, maybe okay. maybe a new ad, but it's it's still it, yeah, probably a new ad. Yeah. All right, so you still have an opportunity to go pick it up. You know, I. I'm not sure what I would do with it. You know, it's just uh, probably the same thing that that guy did and keep it around for a while and then sell it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the same guy has a uh, uh, he's got a Harley XLCR Cafe racer okay. yeah. for sale. He's got uh, a replica board tracker, not like made out of a Virago engine, but like a real a hundred percent authentic replica. I think Harley or Indian early twenties yeah. board tracker. Nineteen nineteen ten Harley Model Six. Is that the one? Yeah, yeah, yeah very yeah. cool. It's 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 not authentic from that era, but it's still. Uh, it looks the part. It yeah. doesn't look like a Virago, right. In a homemade chassis, it, it looks like an authentic nineteen ten Harley board right. track race. Um. He also has, uh, he recently had a CBX for sale. And there's a couple of other bikes that I was really, uh, surprised to find on Craigslist that all turned out to be this guy. Um, I can't think of what the other ones are, but, uh, they're all pristine and they're all photographed in the same place. And I know where the photographs were taken. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is the same guy. Um, I want to say maybe like, uh, Moto Guzzi Le Mans 1000, I think was in there or, uh, uh, 
the Z1R, I think. Oh no, a, a katana. There was a an original uh, Suzuki 1000S katana. Yeah. Uh, Quite the collection. Yeah. And and like uh it's nice to see, you know, sometimes uh when a person is into collecting bikes, they have a particular style. So like Harleys, right? And that sometimes that doesn't cross over into other categories. It's neat to see a nineteen ten Harley and an eighty six FJ twelve hundred in the same collection. That's pretty cool. Yeah, he's got taste. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, I'm not going to be buying anything. I, I actually was considering after, after SmackDown this year, I was thinking, okay, I've done it twice on the spider and my wife and I are planning on doing it next year. And I thought I'd really like to do it on two wheels and say that I did it on a true motorcycle yeah. and I need to do it on something 250 or less to get my 250 tab. Cause, cause yeah. we've got a, Little tabs for your finishers patch, one that says repeat finisher and one that says 250 cc's or less. That, that one you get free. I will pay anybody for their little patch. And, uh, so it, I, I found a Suzuki GS250T mm-hmm. in Columbia, Missouri that, uh, if, People are not familiar with it. Uh, it was a eight valve 250 that was, uh, uh, what do I want to say? It, it was really the first high performance 250 four stroke. There were a lot of 250 two strokes that were kind of performance bikes. And unfortunately, in America, it just was a, kind of a mild cruiser style it was the it didn't have a really seriously step seat but it it still had kind of that cruiser style and the the chassis is nothing remarkable it's spoke wheels 19 inch front wheels 16 inch rear wheel uh single disc buckhorn handlebars uh, but it had this really cool eight valve i think it was a 30 horse engine yeah, that's which, pretty good. Which is about the same as you're going to get out of like uh, the last CBR 250 Honda that you know from from last before they went to the 300. It was putting about 30 horsepower, and to get that out of an air cooled engine in 1980 was actually pretty remarkable. Yeah, and so, so so you don't want to do this on a TW 200? Is that what you're telling me, Pat? Uh, uh, no, me? no, I no, I don't, I do not. <laughs> the fact that I have to do it in within 16 hours uh, on a straight road that's, you know, you got to maintain probably 65, 70 miles an hour while you're going. Man, you wouldn't have, yeah. you wouldn't be able to like stop for fuel. You'd have to have somebody go ahead of you, fill up a jerry can, meet you on the road as you coast to a stop, dump some fuel in it and keep going and, you know, eat trail mix bars. While you're, while you're going down the highway in order to, to do that. So no, I, I don't want to do that. So, yeah. but anyways, I, that it, would be a cool bike to do it on. It, it's, uh, it's about a, uh, I think they were on 1800 for it. And yeah. I'm, and, and I, that one tempts me. Yeah. It's got a big windshield on it too. Yeah. Although I would probably want to, I've got a, uh, uh, Moto Guzzi 1000 SP 
uh, fairing in my garage that would yeah. be a little more aerodynamic mm-hmm. and might might up your top speed and your fuel mileage a little bit over one of those plexiglass barn doors. Yeah. So, but anyways, that it's probably not going to happen, but I'm I'm it's one of those hmm it's kind of like looking at an airplane, you know, you go, "Oh, we need to buy an airplane." Don't yeah. have my pilot's license, don't have any money, don't know where I'd keep it. Don't know who'd maintain it for me, but it's kind of cool. Yeah, speaking of airplanes, and I'm just going to throw this out because it's a random fact. Uh, I flew an airplane for the first time the other day. Uh, my friend and I uh, have always wanted to get pilot's licenses. And sorry, this isn't two-wheeled appropriate. But um, so my friend is now like actively pursuing getting his private pilot's license. We went and took our first flight lesson together. Uh, and during which I got to take control of the airplane, which was kind of cool. I flew a little Cessna 172 for about an hour. Uh, and then, yeah, the pilot took back over and we landed, but interesting little tidbits. First time I've done that. I, I started taking flying lessons when I was 15. My goal, my goal as a kid is I actually wanted to become a lighter than air pilot and fly the Goodyear blimp. I was, I was a real (laughs) squirrel nerd and, I actually was an airship geek as a preteen, and I was going to get my pilot's license, become a perfect pilot, and then go to work for Zeppelin or Goodyear or something like that. Yeah. And um, so I was making $50 a week at Dairy Queen and spending $50 a week for an hour of flying lessons, and then I discovered motorcycles, and that went away. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was like, well, yeah, for $200, I could, I could have a motorcycle ride it all the time. And so I gave that up. And then when I got out of, uh, when I was in the army or excuse me, when I was in college, uh, they offered ground school as a credit class and they had a local airport that you could take lessons at. So I did that. Yeah. As for college credit and. Uh, obviously couldn't afford to do that a whole lot. So when I got out and I got my first real job and I got my first credit card, I was like, I'm finally going to get my license. And I got to the point where for the third time in my life, they were talking, yeah, you're about ready to solo. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm spending money I don't have here. And again, motorcycles got in the way because that's when I bought my GB 500 that was on sale for a stupid price at the local dealer. They had one left over. I was like, Okay, no more airplanes. I'm going to buy the motorcycles. Yeah. So I have actually have about 40 hours of dual time in, in airplanes and yeah. never, never soloed. Most people with yeah. 40 hours are, have soloed and are ready to get their license. Yeah. 40 hours is, uh, the minimum of what you need to get your license. Right. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah. and I realized after that, I'm like, you know what? This is so expensive that I could get my license, but I'll, all I'm going to do is have it for two years, and then I'm going to uh, need to get a biannual flight review to keep it. And right. I was like, I'm never going to be able to afford to have an it's airplane an to fly. It's an expensive hobby. Right. Yes, so, it is. So yeah. I I kind of put that on. But I do have a, a – I call her my niece. She's actually my wife's first cousin once removed, her mm-hmm. my cousin's kid that we actually spent the weekend with on the, for the 4th of July and she has soloed uh, she just got out of high school and she is going off to aeronautical training school she's going to get her college degree in aeronautics not aeronautical engineering but in basically pilot, pilot. training embry riddle 
Uh, no, uh, Liberty University in Virginia somewhere. But okay. anyways, but, uh, and her goal is she wants to get her ATP and become a airline pilot. Well, so they're, they're lining people up for those. I mean, they can literally, and, and just cause I've actually been, I also have wanted to fly since I was about six. And now that I'm almost 50, it's like, okay, you still haven't done it. Bleep head. Yeah. Um, you need to think about it. So I've been looking into it. And, and one of the things is, is that they're talking about there's such a pilot shortage coming that there are companies who will literally pay for your schooling right. at this point if you'll sign a contract to work with them for like three or four years and, as, through, the, through the feeder system. So. And there are a whole crop of not college credited, but just flight training schools that it's like, you know, yeah. in two and a half yep. years, we'll get you a commercial license and yep. – those people will probably end up flying uh, FedEx cargo planes for their entire career, but they'll make a living at it, you know. So. Yeah. Well, should we wrap up there? We're over an hour. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. My wife has some Chinese food on the way home to me, so. Nice. Anything we need to plug as far as social media or anything? I don't care, but all the podcasts do this, so, you know. <laughs> Hooniverse, uh, rumblestrip.net, rumblestrip on. Add, yeah, add, add rumblestrip on Instagram and uh, youtube.com forward slash rumblestripnet for all your latest car review videos. Okay. All right. And, and, the fall, and, and facebook.com forward slash the false neutral. Okay, well, we'll wrap it up for this month. Thank you, gentlemen, and thank you all, listeners, for tuning in again. And we will see you all next month. Okay, so long. Later.